Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, show us great and mighty things in it. Lord, I ask first that you would place your words in my mouth so that we don't listen to a mere man. And secondly, I ask that you would cause the eyes of our hearts to be opened so that what is said by you is not simply left to intellectual understanding, but grips our hearts and changes our lives. Lord Jesus, we give you all honor and glory, and we ask it in your name. Amen. We are going to be looking at uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, uh, frankly, is one of my favorite psalms, and it is a favorite not simply from what it says, uh, but uh, it's also a favorite because of the experience that I have been able to receive of the truth of what Psalm 139 as I have uh, walked with the Lord uh, for a good many years. Now, this particular psalm uh, is, let's just, let me give you the structure of it real quick. It consists of four stanzas, and in each stanza there are six verses. The first four verses deal with the subject of that stanza. The last two verses, five and six of each stanza, uh, not only summarize uh, what was spoken in the first four verses of that stanza, but then also uh, introduces uh, the next stanza that is coming. And so what I'm hoping to do, even though there's four stanzas, I'm hoping to at least get through three of them. Uh, I make no promises, uh, but I'm shooting for three, but keep in mind I'm a lousy shot, and you should know that by now anyway. Uh, the first three stanzas deal with the great attributes, three of the great attributes of God. Now, there are many attributes of God, but this one deals with, the first, with three of the great attributes of God, uh, and the... Um, Last stanza will then deal with David's reflection and reaction to the first three stanzas, to these first three great uh, attributes. Now, an attribute of God is not simply a characteristic. An attribute of God is a different aspect of the essence of who God is. And so when we talk about the glory of God... Uh, what we are talking about is the totality of the essence of his being. And these great attributes are aspects of that essence of his being. And the three attributes uh, of God that is dealt with in Psalm 139, I like to call the three omnis, uh, because they are omniscience, omnipresence, uh, and omnipotence. In the first stanza that we're going to look at, which is going to be verses 1 through 6, uh, David is going to deal with the omniscience of God. In other words, omniscience means all-knowing. There is nothing he doesn't know. Uh, he knows past, present, and future. He knows everything in all eternity. One of the things that God has never done is learned. Because he already knows. God is not learning. God knows all that there is to know. The second great attribute, which is going to be in the second uh, stanza, beginning in verse 7 through 12, is the omnipresence of God. 
In other words, by omnipresence, God is everywhere in his creation. Uh, he is everywhere in all dimensions, and we're going to see that uh, in just a minute. He is not in everything in his creation. He transcends his creation, but he is, a, he is everywhere in his creation. To say that God is in his creation like God is in this lectern, that's pantheism. Uh, that is a false teaching, and you need to avoid that. When it says he is omnipresent, uh, he is everywhere. And then the third uh, stanza, which is going to begin in verse 13 and run through verse 18, is going to talk about the fact that God is omnipotent. Uh, in other words, he is all-powerful. There is no one uh, greater than the Lord, and there is no way, uh, uh, in other words, there's no power in the universe greater than God. He has all power. This idea that there are two forces in the universe equally matched, pushing against each other, is total nonsense. There is only one God, and he is all-powerful. One of my favorite verses is uh, Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? And the thing I like is the way the, 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 way the uh, translation that I like is one of them, and I think it's really a paraphrase, says, I am the God of all flesh. Everything is easy for me. And we can pick up on that in terms of its application to us uh, in Ephesians uh, 3.20 when he says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we may ask or think according to the power at work in us. In other words, this omnipotent power has been made available and is working in us. It's his power. It's not us to manipulate. But he has done and able to do all things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or even imagine. Uh, now, what's significant about Psalm 139? We're talking about these great attributes. In other words, there are two types of attributes. Uh, and pay attention, there's going to be a test afterwards. Uh, there are two types or two uh, groups of attributes. One are called non-communicable attributes. That is that they are limited to God. They are not found anywhere else. They are only found in him. The other, and frankly, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, those types of attributes are non-communicable. They are not found in human beings. There is a different uh, group of attributes that are called communicable attributes, uh, and those can be found resident in man and women, men and women. Uh, for example, love. Righteousness, holiness, faithfulness, these are also attributes of God, but they can be communicated through the Holy Spirit uh, to people. Uh, now, what's so tremendous about this psalm that I like so much about it is we aren't going to have this deep theological discussion over the non-communicable attributes of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipotent, um, omnipresence. What David has done is, what this psalm does is, this psalm deals with those great attributes as they apply and affect David. And so what we're going to look at is these great attributes as they apply and affect us.
because they have tremendous impact on us personally uh, and the way we live our lives and walking with him. Now, there's really going to be two groups that I'm going to talk about, or two parallel tracks, if you will, and one is the Christian and the effect of these great attributes functioning toward and with the Christian, and we're going to be talking about the non-Christian, the one uh, that where the great attributes affect and apply to that non-Christian, because whether you're Christian or non-Christian, you are impacted by these great attributes of God. And so first of all, let me define my terms. Uh, what is a Christian? Well, I would suggest what you saw with Chris this morning is a living example. Uh, and when he was asked the various questions uh, about, are you this, or do you believe this, and do you accept, that's the gospel, folks. And the Christian uh, is someone who sees and understands that he is a hopelessly flawed sinner. What do we mean by sin or sinner? We mean somebody who is completely self-centered. That's the reason the world is a mess today, why our history has been written in bloodshed and wars and crime and divorce and all kinds of problems because we are all self-centered and we are all primarily interested in ourselves. God is exactly the opposite of that. God is others-oriented. And in, within the Trinity, they exalt one another and glorify one another, and the sin keeps us from doing that. That is exactly the opposite of what he is. But even though we were without hope and incapable of coming into his presence because of what we were, Jesus bore all that we were. He bore our darkness, our sins, our mess, everything about us, he bore on the cross in his body, and then he paid our penalty uh, that we so richly deserved. And to show that he was accepted by the Father in what he had done on our behalf, God raised him from the dead. And he was a lousy deal for Jesus in this sense. He got our sin. We got his righteousness. And if you are a Christian and you have come to him and given your life to him and trusted him for what he's done, the Holy Spirit resides in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that the Holy Spirit is in your body and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? For you have been brought with a price. Your body is no longer your own. Glorify God, therefore. Now, the non-Christian uh, is someone who has not done that. He has not trusted Christ. He may deliberately refuse Christ. He may just not care. But Christ has not, uh, while Christ is, may have borne his sin, he has not received that uh, benefit, that grace, of having his sin born if, uh, and paid for. If you're ill, terminally ill in bed and there is a medicine on your dresser drawers or the table next to your bed that could cure you and you never take it, you die. You have to come to him and ask him uh, to come into your life and you have to accept the fact that he died for you. 
And so Christ is not in the person who is the unchristian, non-Christian, and the Holy Spirit is not in them. That is the difference between Christian and non-Christian. Everybody with me? All right. I don't like to use the term believer and unbeliever because there are believers out there that aren't Christians and they don't realize it. So that can be a little bit uh, misleading. Now, what we want to do is see how Psalm 139 applies to both Christians and non-Christians, and the effect is different depending on who you are, which group you fall into. I am assuming that the majority of you fit the definition of Christian. But in a group this size, as a fair guess, there are folks in here that fit the definition of non-Christian. So what we want to do, first of all, is we want to look at this first stanza in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, and that I will read to you. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, you'll notice the first thing it does in verse 1. It says, you have searched me and you know me. Now, that's a general statement. And what we're going to see in this stanza as well as the next two stanzas, an expansion detailing just exactly how he has searched you and known you and what he knows as a result of this detailed search of who you are. And again, let me say this is Christian and non-Christian. This applies uh, to both groups. Now, in verses 2 through 4, he is going to begin to break down the general statement of what it means that God has searched him. Uh, First, notice that it says in verse 2, you know when I sit down uh, and when I rise up. Now, I would suggest to you the point of that is is that sitting down and rising up, which all of you have done several times since you've come in here this morning, sitting down and rising up is about as mundane an activity as you could imagine. It is something you don't even think about. And what it is suggesting here is that God is aware to the nth degree of everything that you do, including rising up and sitting down. There is not any activity or anything you do that he is not aware of, which means nothing happens to you that he didn't catch. He is aware of all that you are doing. In fact, Jesus made a similar statement uh, in Matthew 10, uh, beginning in verse... 29, Uh, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And he says a similar statement in Luke 12, uh, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Are not five sparrows uh, sold? Uh, Well, he says, God is aware of any sparrow that drops to the ground. 
He is aware of the hairs on your head. You are worth more than many sparrows. So if he were saying that today, I think what the Lord would be saying is that he knows your DNA. There is nothing about you that he does not know. And he has your, his eye on you every second. How do you commit sin and get away with it? You do it when he isn't looking. <laughs> not possible. All right. I would suggest to you this also, that nothing that happens to us is unforeseen. And believer, and I won't say this, is, or Christian, I won't say this isn't true of unchristians too, but he watches out for you, and he makes sure that you're taken care of. Uh, and let me give you a, perhaps a silly example. But um, you ever been in a hurry, and you get behind somebody that's doing 30? Mm -hmm. Or you're, in a, you're trying to make an appointment, and now you're on I-20 or I-30, and suddenly you hit a traffic jam? Do you get frustrated and upset? Do you think ill of the 30-mile-an-hour driver in front of you? Mm -hmm. I do sometimes, and then it dawned on me, maybe the Lord has got me behind this guy. Maybe I'm caught in this traffic jam because he knows if I were further down the road when I want to be, that that might be bad news. Maybe he is keeping you from being where you shouldn't be, the wrong place at the wrong time. Next time you get caught in a traffic jam, you might consider thinking about that, that maybe he is looking out for you. Now, here's what I suspect. I suspect God has a legion of angels who do nothing but drive 30 miles an hour on the freeway. <laughs> Now, that's speculation. I can't give you a biblical basis for it. All right, let's look at uh, verse 2b, the second half of 139, uh, verse 2. He says, you understand. Notice he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Then he says, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, verse 3, and my lying down and my intimately and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Now, what we're doing here is we're getting a little deeper with verse 2b. In other words, he knows when you rise up and sit down, but he understands your thoughts from afar. Let me suggest to you folks that yes, he knows your thoughts, but understand means more than know your thoughts. Not only does he know your thoughts, he knows why you think the way you do. He knows what you've been through. He knows the events of your life. He knows how your thoughts have been affected by our culture and the world. He knows the lies you may have bought into from the devil. Uh, he knows the hurts that you have had. He knows the various things that you have uh, endured that cause you to believe and think the way you do in your own thoughts. Now, I would suggest again that can cover both Christians and non Christians. And what it indicates to us is that he is aware of not only your thoughts, now hold on to this, it's not a pleasant thought here. He is aware of your thoughts, 
your imaginations, your fantasies. He is aware of your motivations, your motives, your attitudes. He knows all. He knows whether you love him or not. He knows whether you're loyal or not. Uh, Proverbs 16.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. You thought your thoughts were private, didn't you? They aren't. He knows everything about you. For the believer, that's tremendous because what he can do is knowing what you've been through, knowing the hurts, knowing the problems, all of these things, he knows what to do to go about healing you and fixing you. And on top of that, he knows all of your needs, and he knows your griefs, he knows your anxieties, he knows your stress, and he knows how you feel. And he is prepared, Christian, to meet every need, whether it's physical or emotional. I'll give you a small and simple example. I uh, have told this to the Sunday school so those of you in the class can chill out. I may have told it here too. When I was in the Navy in Norfolk, I wanted to attend a well-known religious seminar and it was being held in Washington, D.C. at Constitution Hall. So I signed up for it and I uh, paid the money I needed to, to go and I got leave so I could go. But one of my problems is I didn't know where Constitution Hall was. I didn't know what I would do. It was a week-long seminar. I didn't know where I would live or stay. I had none of those ideas. I was single at that time. If I had been married, my wife would have handled all that. <laughs> but since I was single, I went to Jesus instead. And I told him what my concerns were. And this is one of the values, folks, of knowing him and knowing the one that knows you. And I told him what my concerns were. And you know what he said? He said, don't worry. I have thrown a bridge across every river that you will encounter. And then he said something very interesting. However, if you choose to worry, I've still thrown a bridge across every river. Well, some of you may not know this, but my middle name is Worry. And so I worried. And the drive from Norfolk, Virginia, up to Washington, D.C. on Interstate 95 is a beautiful drive and very historical, and I missed all of it. I was too worried about where was I going to park and how was I going to find Constitution Hall and what would I do for a week once I got there. Well, I got into Washington, D.C., and there was a sign on the freeway that said, next turn off Constitution Hall. All right, Lord, what about parking? Any of you been to Washington, D.C.? There's no such thing as parking there, is there? So I get off. The Constitution Hall is a block away from the freeway. And as I drive up, there is a parking place in front of the door. I park there. I go in. There's a bunch of people in there registering. I register, and as I am registering, and just as I finish, somebody taps me on the shoulder. I turn around, and it's a friend from Norfolk. He said, do you have a place to stay? I said, no. He said, we've rented a house in Fairfax. Come stay with us. Jesus knew the need, and he met the need, 
And the fact that I worried about it didn't change anything. When he says he'll do something, he'll do something because he's faithful. Now, I was of little faith, but that did not negate him meeting my need. All right, now, let's look at verse uh, 3a, where, 3b, where he says, uh, 3, I'm sorry, 3a, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And I'm going to have to move uh, quickly on this. Scrutinize is even more detailed than understand. Scrutinize is greatly examined. And it's interesting that it follows uh, understanding my thoughts because our conduct, our ways, oftentimes, most of the time, are the result of what we think. Uh, Proverbs uh, also says uh, in 23 verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so the way we think governs what we do, but he is well aware of all that we do. And when it says, my paths and my lying down, he is scrutinizing everything about you in terms of activity as well as passivity. You can active or passive. Even when you're asleep at night, he is watching and, and aware of you and scrutinizing what is going on, even though we aren't aware of it. And the result of knowing when you stand and rise Understanding your thoughts from afar and scrutinizing your activity or inactivity continually is, he says in verse 4, um, he says in verse 3b, and our I am in he is intimately acquainted with all my ways. In other words, everything about you, he is intimately acquainted. He isn't just sort of knows. He is intimately acquainted with all your ways. Now, on top of that, we are going to see in the next two stanzas further expansion of the words intimately acquainted and just how intimately acquainted uh, he is with you. Now, let's look at 5 and 6 because I want to move into omniscience. I'm sorry, from omniscience into omnipresence. Now, notice what I said. The second, the fifth and sixth verse of the stanza will summarize what's gone before, and then it'll introduce us into the next stanza. So five and six says, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Now, he's summarizing all that he has said in the first four verses but now he is leading us into the next stanza when he says, you have laid your hand upon me, you have enclosed me behind and before. What's the next stanza going to deal with? Omnipresence. So let's look at that. Seven, when I call, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now, uh, notice that not only does he know you, but he's got you surrounded. Now, omnipresence means that he, as I said earlier, he is everywhere. But where you're concerned, he is everywhere around you. He's got you covered front and back. And he knows everything you do. Not only does he know you've done it, 
He watched you do it because he was all around you. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary, Methodist missionary of the 30s, made this statement about omnipresence. If you were to reach out physically to touch God, you've reached too far. He's that close to you. Uh, now, what David is doing here, and uh, he's basically saying you cannot hide from God. Jeremiah 23, um, in verse 24, can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Uh, and David is using extreme examples. Now he's saying, where can I flee from your presence? I don't think David wants to flee from his presence. Now people who are not following God may want to flee from his presence. But the point is, you can't get away from him. And David is giving extreme locations where you might try to go and you still can't get away from him. He said, if I go up into the heavens, you are there. And of course, anytime I'm flying on a plane, I'm very sensitive to that because I told you worry is my middle name. And I don't like flying. I get nervous. And as we're taking off, I'm saying, Lord, you are here. I know you are here. Now, David only understood the heavens, the atmosphere. We've put people on the moon. And let me tell you something. If God was there, there was no place they could go in the universe that he would not be there. There is no place you can go that he will not be there. And what's interesting, he says, if I descend into Sheol. Now, Sheol is the place of the dead. And it is not down in the depths of the earth, folks. Sheol actually is hell, and Sheol is a different dimension. So God is not only everywhere in his physical creation, he is everywhere in every dimension. You mean he's in hell? Yes, he is. But he's there in judgment. It's not a place where you want to be where he's there, but he is there, uh, and he is there in judgment. Now, if I go to the deepest part of the sea, do you know where that is, incidentally? It's the Marianas Trench in the Pacific. It's about 35,000, 34,000 feet deep. He's there. There is no place you can go that he is not there. And for the Christian, I, that would have to be tremendous comfort uh, to know that he is everywhere uh, that you could be. Now, one of the things that uh, is significant about omnipresence, because it gets into the penalty that Jesus paid for us, you see, Jesus had constant conscious awareness of the presence of God around him. In other words, for us, many of us, the idea, well, God's everywhere, I know that. It's intellectual only, though. We don't have the conscious sense of his presence. Many of us don't. Jesus had a constant, continual, conscious sense of his presence. And when he hung on the cross and bore our sins, the Father ultimately, while he was bearing our sins, turned his face from him. And they were separated, and he lost that consciousness of his presence. That is paying our penalty. He did that so that we would never experience it 
ourselves. And we have no idea of the extent of his suffering in doing that. I would suggest to you that when he, and Luke tells us in Luke 22, uh, 46, that he was sweating in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sweating drops of blood because he was in such agony. Now, uh, that's not a myth, folks. That's actually a condition called hematidrosis, where a person is in such stress that the blood capillaries on the edge of the skin rupture and mix with the sweat and can drop to the ground. That's the kind of agony he is in. Uh, I doubt Luke understood, though he was a physician, understood hemotidrosis in the first century AD. But I would suggest to you that the agony was not so much produced by the idea of physical crucifixion as the idea that he was going to be separated from God and there would no longer be that conscious communion with him. He was dreading that. We don't dread it because we don't experience it. But the day will come if you're not in Christ when you will. And he endured that for you to make sure you didn't experience that or ever go through that. Uh, many, many of the believers have been martyred. Many have done much suffering, but they have never done so without the presence of God. Jesus is the only one. God turned his face from him on the cross, and that's why Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not really asking a question. He's making a statement. He is experiencing that loss of communion right there on the spot. That's the penalty that we would pay eternally. Uh, and so he took it for us. Uh, now, he did this to reconcile us to God. And let me suggest this to you folks. His desire, God's desire in reconciling us to him was in order that eventually we would enter into the same conscious knowledge of his presence in order that we might have a fellowship with him that exceeds anything we have ever known. Let me give you Ephesians uh, real quick. Three. Uh, men's groups have been looking at Ephesians. Um, how long have we been in Ephesians, guys? Twelve years? <laughs> yeah, we did Romans, and our grandchildren joined us. Uh, this is a prayer for Paul, from Paul, because this is why Jesus, this is what it means to be reconciled with him. Not only are your sins forgiven and your penalty paid, and we get his righteousness, and we are able to come into God's presence, but this is not intended to be simply an intellectual understanding. Ephesians 3.16, Paul's prayer, praying to the Father in verse 15, and then he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now, when he says to know, 
the love of Christ, the word there, and invariably in the New Testament, it's the same word for know, is kenosko. And it means a conscious experiential knowledge of him, not simply an intellectual belief. And then if we go over to Ephesians 4, where he says in 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service of the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and, look at this, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. All right. To the knowledge of the Son of God is the same thing, an experiential knowing of him, not knowing about him, but knowing him. Now, the last stanza I was going to cover, and I'll cover it quickly, uh, because I've been ordered to keep this message at two hours. So I'm going to cover this very quickly, and that is omnipotence. Omnipotence, though, is pictured in the form of God involvement with you in the womb. He says he knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knows you intimately from the very beginning. In fact, we know from Ephesians he knew you before the foundation of the world. But we think of omnipotence as power, the universe created, the Rocky Mountains created, but omnipotence is also seen in the creation of a flower, in the delicacy of the flower. It's omnipotence that does that. And he has created you in the womb and was actively involved in your development in your mother's womb. And on top of that, he has determined the length of days that you will have on this earth. Now that's omnipotence. Now let me suggest this to you. First of all, David's response to all of this is in verse 23 and 24. It starts out, search me, O Lord, and you have searched me and you've known me. How does it end? Search me and let me know if there's any unclean or hurtful way in me because he wants to be continually clean before him. He doesn't want anything that gets in the way of this tremendous interplay between the God of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. And neither do you. Now, if you're a Christian, this should provide tremendous comfort for you because he is actively on your side. Philippians 1.6, I am convinced of this, that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And Philippians 2.13, for he is at work in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. He is, knows you and knows what gets to you and knows what it takes to make you happy and knows what's necessary to heal you and bring you into ever-increasing maturity in Christ so that when he appears, you will see him as he is because you will be like him. If you are a non-Christian this morning, you should be alarmed because nothing you have thought, said, or done has escaped him. And the problem is, and this is true of all of us, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We rarely fully understand just how bad we really are. Well, I don't see anything wrong with me. All right. But that's because you don't realize the depth of God's knowledge of you. 
Acts 17.31 says, God has appointed a day where he will judge the world by one man. And we know from John 5 that that one man is Jesus Christ. When you stand before him, he is going to know everything about you. I've often said before that in lawsuits, judges and juries are the least knowledgeable of the facts. Uh, and often their rulings are by what they perceive the truth to be. The people that know more than them are the lawyers. And they don't know it all. The parties they represent know the most of it. But even they don't know it all. But God knows it all. He does not judge by perception. He judges by truth. And that's Romans 2.2. He is not going to compare you with Adolf Hitler. He is going to compare you with Jesus Christ, and you're going to flunk. But let me say this to you. He is opposed to you right now. Let's get Psalm 34 real quick. Psalm 34, verse 16, The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. <clears throat> the Lord is near the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed. He is, uh, right now, if you are outside of Christ, he is opposed to you, and he will have no choice but to pronounce judgment on you when you stand before him. Now, that's pretty sobering, but you should be alarmed. But it is not what he wants. He wants you to come now into that relationship that Jesus provided when he bore your sin and pay your penalty. But if you do not take advantage of it, there is no choice. Uh, you are not going up there on that day of judgment to have a trial, and we're going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds, and maybe you'll squeak through. Criminal cases in Texas and in most states have two phases. The factual phase where we determine guilt or innocence. If you're found guilty, the second phase comes into effect. That's the sentencing phase. You are not going up for a trial of guilt or innocence. You are going up for sentencing. And the result is condemnation. The only way you can escape is if God has imputed to you, as he has us, the righteousness of Christ. We were all just as bad as you were. And we still struggle, but we have one who knows us, who loves us, who works with us, who strengthens us. I've walked with him 51 years, and the thing I have learned is how utterly weak I am and how dependent I am. And I can only say, thank goodness he showed himself to me 51 years ago. And he wants to show you himself. I want to close for you, and I'm talking to the guy that's the non-Christian or the gal. You're going to have to acknowledge who you are and what you are before him. And you're going to have to ask for mercy, and you'll get it. But you'll have to ask. He's not going to make you do it. Here's one of my favorite verses. The Sunday school folks get it all the time from me. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. I'm talking to you, both groups now, but to the unchristian. Non-Christian. 
Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. If you don't long for him, the one who waits to have compassion on you, he is also a God of justice, and he has no choice otherwise. Let me plead with you now, today, to come before him and cry out to him and ask him to give you the spirit and to give you the faith to trust that Jesus has paid it all for you. All right, we need to quit, folks. But that's Psalm 139 or 347. Uh, we don't have time to go into the next one, next stanza. But let me pray. Before we do, if this is the first time you've been here, let me uh, invite you to the Welcome Center over here in the corner. Now, you won't be standing there in the dark. The lights will be on. And if you've been coming and you want to get to know staff, in the left side, in the back, is Connection Coffee, where you can meet elders and staff. Uh, and then there are elders and wives that will come down front here and will pray for you if you need prayer. If you are a non-Christian and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, I can't make you do anything. The Holy Spirit, some of you, is speaking to you. Come down front let us pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you know us inside and out. Thank you that you are intimately acquainted with us uh, because you know all that we do and think because you surround us and because you knew us even in our mother's womb. Lord, I ask that you would pour out a blessing on everyone here, that we would continue to walk forward in Christ and enter into that conscious knowledge of your presence, that communion that you wait on high to have and want from us. Lord, I ask you to go before us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would baptize us in your Holy Spirit, that we might be instruments for your use to those who are outside of Christ. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.